This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Let's go. You tell me. All right. Parsha Yishlach, everyone, 5784. Here's what it says. Parak Lamed Vav Pasik Mem. We're toward the very, very end of the Parsha. It says, These are the names of the leaders of Esav by family. According to their places, by their names. Interesting, right? By family, by place, by name. Aluf Timna, Aluf Alba, Aluf Yaseis. And a bunch of people are mentioned. There's Memalaf, Membez, and Memgimo, Aluf Magdiel, Aluf Iram. There were 11 of them all together. Ela Alufe Adom Lemoshvosam, the Eretzachuzasam. These are the leaders of Adom according to the places they stayed, right, in the land where they grabbed, I guess you could say they grabbed for themselves. Who Asav Avi Adom? This is Asav, the father of Adom. And that's what we have for the end of this week's parsha. Now, here's the weird part over here. If you look at Parak Lamed Vav, which is entirely, it's 43 psukim talking about Esav's family. If you look at all of Parak Lamed Vav, we already mentioned the Alufim of Esav. They're mentioned in psukim Tesvav through Yudches. It says, here are the leaders of Esav, and it goes through all of them. We do that again for Seir. There are other Alufim from Seir and psukim Yudchavtes and Lamed. Then afterward, we mention eight kings of Edom. You'd think an Aluf is a king, but it's not. It's a leader. And here it goes to the kings themselves. And then it goes back to these psukim, which talk about Alufim again. Why is it Aluf Esav at first, Aluf Seir, then the kings of Esav, and then the Alufim of Esav once again? Rav Chaim Paltiel says it in the best possible way. What in the world is going on here? And he doesn't answer the question. He just says, what's going on? Why are these psukim being repeated over and over and over again? And we're going to try to attempt to answer that. Now, the word aluf in and of itself is a strange word. It means duke, right? It, that really is what it is. A leader, but a duke. Like a dukedom, etc. That type of idea. This place, because it says, limishpachosam limkomosam, it really refers to the city-states that ruled themselves. There were a bunch of places that had leaders of those areas, and those leaders of the areas were really the kings of their areas. They weren't actual kings, they didn't have a kingdom, but they had a dukedom, they had a city-state, something that they were in charge of. The Midrash Chafetz says the difference between a duke and a king is that a king has a crown, and a duke does not. But that's really it. Everything else that the duke says or does is automatically taken as law, just like a king. It's just that the king has a crown. The king has more power. There's more people that he's in charge of. As, we, we, as we're going to see, Rashi and the Ibn Ezra say that this refers not to the leaders themselves, but to the areas that the leaders were from. While the Ramban, the Ralbag, and the Radak say it refers to people who were leaders that appeared later on, possibly not even at the time of the Torah, and this is all a prediction of what's going to happen in the future. That's the Machlokas between Rashi and those other Rishonim. Ravariya Kaplan says it could be referring to tribes of Esav and Adom. And it's kind of weird to think about because we don't think of people in this way, but tribes of these people that survived the periods of the kings and lasted until the times of Moshe Rabbeinu, and therefore he translates the word aluf not as dukedom or a duke, but rather as a tribe. That's how he understands that he goes through. Now, there is another opinion. Tur brings down, this is the Balaturim, but it's an actual safer on the Torah, says the word aluf means secondary. He says, maybe these names refer to women 
who were secondary concubines of the first wives after their husbands, you know, had these certain wives. They were married afterward. That would mean that all 11 people seemed to be women, not men. That the first alufim were men. These alufim were actually women. And every person here, Timna, Alva, Yeseis, Magdiel, Iram, are all referring to secondary wives of the leaders. That seems to be what the Torah seems to say. There's another way of reading the Torah, but I like that reading of the Torah a little bit better. Now, as we said before, Rashi says everyone mentioned in these psukim had names that matched their cities or we don't know what their names are. They're known for their cities. They could have been named something else entirely, but they're kings over this area or alufim over this area itself. Hadar was the last king of Asaph. That's in the previous Pasuk. Right from then on, there were leaders, but there were no kings. The ones mentioned above were called by those names, not by the names of their cities. These guys are different. So that means Timna is not the name of a person. Timna is the name of a city-state. So too with Alva. So too with Yeseis, all the way to Magdiel and Iram, it is not referring to people, it's referring to areas, and that's that. The people were named for their city-states. It would be like saying, I don't know if this would work so well, I have absolutely no idea, but like the Prime Minister of Ecuador being called Ecuador. That's just what he's called. It's the area, the country of Ecuador, and he's just known for that. It would sort of be, and if you wanted to say it, you know, a little more whatever, it would be like the mayor of Chicago being called Chicago, right? That would be the idea. The mayor of Milwaukee being called Milwaukee. The mayor of New York City being called New York City. That would be the idea, and each one being in charge, and that's that. That's how Rashi seems to say it. The Ibn Ezra says these places were well known in the times of Moshe Rabbeinu. People knew exactly where it was. Everyone here are descendants of the people mentioned above, and and the cities, right, those certain areas that were there, were based on all the people of up above that we go through, all the children of Esav and the grandchildren of Esav and the Mamzerim that came from Esav, etc. Now the Rashbam, he says these are the names of the people that were successful and took over certain areas. Meaning, it's not named after the areas, rather it's people who then took over these areas. That's the idea of what he says before, and that's why their names are not repeated here, what some of their names wouldn't be repeated later on, right? And that's that. He says that's what it means in Divrei Yamim. It's an interesting line from the Rosh Bamba, that's that. And then comes Rav Moshe. Rav Moshe Feinstein in Darash Moshe, he learns from this that there are some people that are Chashuv, because of what they themselves do. They do hush of things, and they happen to live in certain places, right? If they lived elsewhere, they could be just as great, or maybe they're only great because they're in that area. I, I'm not making fun. I'm going to make up a city, okay? There's a city in nowhere, in the middle of Canada, where nobody's ever heard of the place. And the rabbi there is a great rabbi. Now, if that rabbi lived somewhere else, he wouldn't be well-known, and nobody would know who he is. There's nothing necessarily that makes him stand out from his peers anywhere else. But because he's in that city, he's the only person there. He's super chashuv because he knows way more than everybody that's there. Says Ramosha, the way that we should be is not allow us to become famous because of the places that we're in. Famous is not the right word. Us to become chashuv from the place that we're in, but rather that we become chashuv in and of ourselves. It has nothing to do with where we are. Reblazer Silver was one of the ge'onim of the last generation, maybe two generations ago, right, 50s and 60s, lived in Cincinnati in a very, very small kihila, Refraim Greenblatt, right, in Memphis, right? We're talking about ge'one olam, but they lived in the middle of nowhere. So 
Baruch Hashem, their reputation preceded them. And even though their kehila, right, was not exactly the biggest that you could possibly imagine, they lived in cities that were in the middle of no, well, I shouldn't say Cincinnati, Memphis is in the middle of nowhere, but they are, right? Either way, right, the concept is, is that they were chashuv themselves. They didn't look at it like, well, I'm the best here, I might as well just be around here. That's the idea that Ramosha Feinstein is trying to take from over here. Everybody should be on a level where that Milo, that level that you have, exists everywhere. And that's exactly what these Pesukim are saying. They're known for the places that they were in. That's the idea of the Darish Moshe. Okay, all of that was first level of Rishonim. The other level of Rishonim, which is the Redak and the Ralbag and the Ramban, specifically the Ramban, says, first of all, the first thing that happened were there were all these leaders. They lived in different areas. They were all part of Esav Atzat. Eventually, there became kings. There were kings of all the land of Esav, right? They were the ones who were given special privileges and whatever it is, and that's that. Eventually, there were alufim that were running the show under the kings. There were kings that were in charge, but there were other people that were sort of like, I don't know, mayors, governors of certain areas, and they took care of those areas, and the king was like the major guy, he's dealing with this, that, and the other, but the alufim were the guy who were really taking care of the nitty-gritty, doing everything right there. They didn't have the throne, they didn't have the honor that a king would give them, but that's what it was. He says, there are people that think these psukim are talking about the future. And we're dealing with things that's going to happen way after the Torah, that they're then going to become kings, and then there's going to be a lufim and stuff like that, right? But he says, to me, it seems that all the leaders of Edom are talking about times before the Torah was given to Moshe Rabbeinu. So we're talking all the leaders and everybody up until the year 2448, when the Torah was given itself, and that's that. They lived short lives. They didn't live very long lives because they were evil people. So each king lived for five, ten years, even though it looks like, wow, that must have been a long time, because eight kings, and all these alufim before, and all these alufim afterward, it's possibly lived somewhat during the same time, and they didn't live very long, and that's why it lasted up until the years of Moshe Rabbeinu, that's the Ramban itself. The tour says there's a bit of a proof to this from the Divrei Yomim, Pasuk, uh, Divrei Yomim Aleph, Tarek Aleph, Pasuk Nun Aleph, that seems to say something like this, Vayomas Hadar, that Hadar died, Vayu Alufi Esav, and then and the Alufa Esav came along. It sounds like all of this happened right before Moshe Rabbeinu was one after the other, or during that time the Alufa Esav took over after the last king died. The Barbanel says something similar as well. But here's what I really wanted to get to. All of that is regarding history and the basic idea of the Rishonim. We know who Timna is. Timna was the wife, the concubine of Eliphaz, we don't know if she was also married to Sayer at the time and there was a little bit of something going on, but we know that Amalek was the child of Timnah. Okay, the question really is, is this Timnah that's mentioned over here referring to the woman who was a concubine of Eliphaz and that's why she's mentioned here? If so, it would be strange. She's a leader, she's a concubine, she's not even a regular wife. She's the mother of Amalek, that's true. But what made her special that allowed her to be mentioned right over here, even if she did give birth to Amalek? Amalek wasn't special until later on. And even then, he was only special because he fought against Klal Yisrael. Why would Timna specifically be mentioned over here? Now, the Rashba seems to say exactly that in Baba Basra, Kuptes, Vavonaves, Adni Ibn Ezra, that it is a woman... She was Kashuf, even though she was only a concubine, she did some great things. Tosefis Bracha suggests this as well, that the leader of this area was actually a woman, which was very progressive of them back then. I, I, I would definitely mention that. And some of the others could be as well. Again, we mentioned a shot up above that it could have been they're all women. But they say that it was that. But it could be that there were two people named Timna. 
there was a woman named Timna who was the concubine, and there was a son of Eliphaz who also had the name Timna. The same as his concubine, which is super weird. But he named a child Timna, and he had a concubine named Timna. That's the opinion of the Ibn Ezra, the Tur, the Midrash, Seichel Tov, and the Lakach Tov. There was a Sefer Yosh that says the sons of Yush, but that's that. According to them, both of them, Timna and Olivama, which is mentioned in Pasuk Membez in this week's Parsha, are names of women earlier in Paraklamid Vav, and now they're also names of men. There is a Timna that's a woman and a Timna that's a man. There's an Olivama that's a woman and Olivama that's a man, and that's that. We see elsewhere that there's such a concept of names being used for men and women, and this is just two examples of that. In fact, Rechaim Knievsky in his Sefer Time at Akra, Parshas Kiseite, pages 225 to 226. He brings up a certain saver that it's a possibility. That you should not name a boy a girl's name, and you shouldn't mention a girl. You shouldn't name a girl a boy's name. And he says because that's part of lo yilbash gever simlas isha that a man can't wear women's clothing, a woman can't wear men's clothing. Including that says the divrei malkiel is that you can't use different names for the other person. Isn't that amazing? Rav Chaim Knievsky then goes on, and as only Rav Chaim Knievsky can do, and he lists 79 names that are interchangeable between men and women, between different parts of Tanakh, Shas, and Midrashim. Can you name a couple? Pat. <laughs> Pat didn't make it into Tanakh, right? I, there's some interesting ones. For example, you've all heard of Rabba Barbarchana. Rabba Babar Chana Amr Rabbi Yochan. Rabbi Yochan is mentioned all over the Gemara. Chana is not a girl. Chana is a guy. Chana is the brother of Evu, who's the father of Rabchia and possibly Rav. He is the brother of Evu. He had four other brothers, four, five brothers altogether. Evu was one. Chana was the other. And obviously it's also a girl's name because we have Chana from the Shmuel, Shmuel's mother. That's for sure. But Chana is a famous one. There's another name, another one named Avi. Aleph Beis Yud, Aleph Beis, Beis Yud is mentioned. Obviously, it's short for Avram, right? But Avi is mentioned twice in Tanakh. One is a girl's name, one is a boy's name. And he mentions 79 of them. 79. That's absolutely crazy. Like, I, there are so many out there, right? And that's that. The Zecher from this is Lul Yabash Gavar And for some reason, I don't know why, he doesn't mention Olivama or Timnah. Even though these Rishonim clearly say in Midrashim, clearly say that they're interchangeable between men and women. There's a Timna that's a man and a Timna that's a woman. Olivama that's a man, Olivama that's a woman. For some reason, Rechaim Knievsky doesn't say it. Maybe it's because they're non-Jewish names and not Jewish names, and therefore he doesn't mention them. I have absolutely no idea. I don't even know. Does anybody know a Timna nowadays? I mean, if there are people named Nimrod in Israel, is there a Timna in Israel? Does anybody know? It's a weird name. Like, you should refuse right? Monea is where it comes from. It's a very, very strange name to be able to go through. Either way, that's there. Ba- the Bali Tosfos, they say that Olivama was actually an androgynous, meaning she was both a man and a woman. She had all the different parts, and she was that. And it's very difficult to understand because it says that she gave birth to children, and androgynous is always sterile, right? So that's a very strange thing. But he does say that as well. But either way, we've got three very, very, very different opinions of is Timna and Olivama women, and there are women here, are Timna and Olivama men's names and women's names, or is Olivama an androgynous. He just doesn't say anything about Timna, but Olivama is that an androgynous itself. Okay, going on. If you look at Pasuk Mem Gimel, we mention the name Magdiel. 
Who is Magdil? Who is this guy? So according to Sefer Yasher, he is a son of Korach, not the Korach that you guys know and love, right, from Parshish Korach. He's a Korach, one of the children of Esau. Magdil is his kid, and that that's that. It seems to be an actual name, not a place. Sefer Yasher seems to say it as a name, unlike Rashi above. Rashi above obviously said that it's a place. So what is this place, says Rashi? Rome. It's referring to Romi. It's referring to Rome. The Guriari say it's assumed because both names mean the same. The word Rome in Hebrew is Resh Vav Mem, which means room, to be lifted up and to be exalted. Magdi El is also Migdal, as in raised up and exalted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I'm just telling you the Hebrew name and what the Guriari says on it. The Guriari says it's called Romi. I hear you. I hear you. I'm just telling you. From Romi, that's where he said it. I, I don't know. But that's what he said. They're both connected to each other. Ram? Ram, like Ram. Oh, like Ram. But yeah, Rome Ram. is high. But it's the same basic source. I mean, Refersh would say, the, you know, the etymology of the words is the same. It's basically like rising something up and keeping something high. I think it's the same basic idea. And that's Magdil as well. Now, Targum Yonasan says Magdil was named for the city Migdal Takif, which was a strong tower, right? I think that's what he means over there. And Migdal Takif, maybe there was a strong tower there that was really important. The Ravina Bechaya says he was the most powerful of all the other Alufim. He had tremendous Tremendous greatness and power. In Daniel's dream, we know that Rome, right, was the area that's supposed to have raised themselves above everybody else. This is in Daniel and Perexine and Perches, right, hinted to by the name itself. Apparently, he says, Magdiel, who's the king of, of the Aluf of Esav, was the first king of Rome, according to this idea from the Rabbin of Achaia, and it's his descendants who took over the entire area and eventually created what's known as the Roman Empire. I tried looking up a little bit about the history of the Roman Empire to say exactly what time period this would have been and where he would have come from. This is a little confusing, and I don't know if the way our Midrashim work out is going to be the same way that the Roman history works out. I don't know exactly, but that's the idea that the Rabbeinu Bechaya brings down, and he says it's all hinted to in Daniel. Another hint to this is the next name, which is Eram. Eram is similar to the words Mi'ar, Yecharsemena Chazir Mi'ar, that they were destroyed by the pig of the the forest. Another reference to Asav. If Mi'ar is the same as Iram, then perhaps both of these names, Magdil and Iram, the last two names over here, are a reference to Edom and Rome and everything out there. Ellie, what do you got? Yeah, we're going to get to that. But yes, 100%. No, well, Shlomo Melech and then later on, yeah, no, hold on, we'll get to that in Chizkiah. So we'll talk about that in a second. Right? I'm sorry? I mean, you're talking like historically versus what the Gemara tells us, right? So I don't know which one. But either way, the Ramban doesn't understand this at all. As we said before, the Ramban says, there are those that think that this is a Nevoah for the future. This is clearly a Nevoah for the future, that Rome is going to be created from the children of Esav, and that Magdil and Romi are connected to each other, and Eram is also Miar, etc. But he says, I don't understand. Why would you call Rome an aloof? And Aluf is not a king. And Aluf is just a leader, a, a duke, as we said before. The Romans were unbelievably powerful. They took over the entire area. Their kingdom was so large, it can't be compared to any other kingdom at the time or even before it or after it. So he says it can't be. There's no way. And that's why he says it's got to be a guy named Magdil. It can't be referring to actual Rome itself. He doesn't understand Rashi whatsoever. However, Rashi is not making this up. He's quoting a Pirkei du Rebbe Eliezer's in Perak Lamed Ches, which says Esav was rewarded that when Yaakov 
came to Eretz Yisrael, Esav left and went down to Seirah because he left on purpose. He allowed Yaakov to live there. He was given a hundred countries to be his from Seir all the way to Magdiel, which is Rome. All of that is in the Pirkei of Rebeliezer. That was the reward given to him for him to take over that area. The point of that Medrash, says the Ramban, is not about what's happening, what's happening, what idea behind it, but he says it's the idea of a concept, conceptually, what's going to happen in the future. Not that Magdil is Rome, but the concept of Magdil will happen in the future. That their kingdom is going to spread throughout the world. There's going to be great things that Rome is going to be able to do. They're going to be the foundation, that Iram is the foundation of the city will be laid for Mashiach to come later, and that's that. But not that there was an actual, that we're actually hinting to Rome taking over the world, and the Romans being this powerful nation. That is not what it's trying to do. As for the Ramban, as for what the Ramban says, Mizrahi says this may have been the first king who did not have an actual crown. And that's why the Ramban's question of, wait a second, Rome is filled with kings, filled with emperors. How could this possibly be? It's a possibility. You're right. But at this time, Magdiel was a king without a crown. He was a little bit different and that area would have that idea in the future. Now, there's more. You just mentioned it before, Ellie. I think you said the Barabbas that I want... Oh, no, I think it was Dave. How could this be Rome if the Gemara tells us that Shlomo Melech married Basparo and on that day that they got married with each other, Gavriel came down, planted a piece of dirt on the sea that eventually grew to become the city of Rome. That means that again, Shlomo Amalek, when he married Basparo, Rome didn't exist in the times of Esav and all of these things when the Torah sent. It's way in the future, says the Bar Basada. He says he'd understand. And then he says even further, when Chizkiyo sinned later on in his life, Chizkiyo Amalek was almost 11 generations later after Shlomo Amalek, right? That's when the city was actually built. The land was made by Shlomo Amalek. The city was built when Chizkiyo sinned. It sounds like Rome had not been built yet. There, was not, there wasn't even a land that was known as Rome. And he answers this in two different ways. He says, number one, maybe it's an Avua for the future, what's going to happen in the area, or, and this is the big one, there are two Romes. There is the Rome that we know of as Rome in Italy. And that's what we're referring to with Chizkiyo Amalekh, as well as, as what happened with Shlomo Melech. And that's the area of it, whatever it was. That's when Rome was formed. That's when Hashem allowed that area to become very powerful. But there's another Rome that's called Rome Minor. And Rome Minor may be where Magdiel took over. That's not in Italy. That could have been anywhere. That could have been in Turkey for all we know, in Lebanon. It could have even been in Eretz Yisrael. Magdiel is an area that was taken over that's also known as Rome, but it's not the Rome, not the Rome that we know of, right, where we have today the Vatican City, etc. That's not where it was. Maybe it's somewhere else entirely different. Sefer Yasher and the Osifun say that Eliphaz's son, Tzfo, if anybody's heard of the name Tzfo before, was captured by the Egyptians in a war where they tried to fight against the Jews. He was captured and eventually escaped, running away to the area that would eventually be known as Italy and took over the area. He became king over the area in 2316, around 130 years before Matan Torah. But again, that's not... That's likely not the Rome that we know of, because that would have come later on. Interestingly, the Kav HaYosher, Rekardenauer, right, which we learn on Monday nights, Rekardenauer says in his very last piece that Sifo is the gematria of Polin, 
and that he was also the founder of Poland. He took over that area as well. Again, I tried looking up Polish history as well. That didn't work out very well either. So I, I, I don't have any idea how it started or where it came from. But Svob and Esav would have been that idea right over here. There's even more. I found some things that I just I can't get into the wording. Beratius Rabban Perak Pegimel seems to say that when the Emperor Latinus I don't know how to spell it. I don't know how it's supposed to be pronounced. Became king. Rabbi Ami had a dream. Rabbi Ami. We're talking in Amora from the 3rd century, maybe the 4th century. Rabbi Ami, the famous Talmud of Rabbi Yochanan, had a dream that he was Magdiel. That's in the 200s, the 300s, around that time. He understood from there that Rome would have one more king and that would be it. And that would be it. Now, it's not, I mean, the Romans had emperors and kings until a much later time, until at least the 1100s. So I'm not sure what exactly that meant. But again, maybe it's not Rome. It might be referring to Rome Minor, whatever that's referring to. And there's another Romi that we're talking about. Maybe that's the idea behind it. The Amboise makes it clear on page 655 that Rome is not really Edom, even though there were times when Edom take over the area, took over the area. Rome is Kitim. He says, the area of the Ketim, their kingdom was very powerful because they were very wise people. Edom was involved, but he is not them. And therefore, there are differences between them. And that's just a history of what happened over there. That's all I could find on this. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, but there were different roles, right? There was like the Democratic Rome, the Senate, the Roman Senate, and then there were the Caesar roles when they had... That's definitely correct, but all in the same area. This is all indicating that there's another area called Rome, and that's not the Rome in Italy itself, and that's a totally different place. I mean, does that, could it possibly mean like when it became you know, Constantine and they went to Christianity like that? Maybe. Maybe It's a possibility. I can't tell you any. I literally have no information to be able to go with this. It's going to take like a deep dive, and I'm not into deep dives. So like, this is going to be a little bit more. The Balitosos say that the eight kings of Edom correspond to the eight kings of B'nai Yisrael that will reign from Shaul Amalek, so clearly it's not in order, up until Yehoshaphat. If you go from Shaul Amalek to Yishboshes to David Amalek to Shlomo, etc., right? If you go down Rechav Asa, eventually you get to Yehoshaphat. And Yehoshaphat is going to be the eighth king. In his son, Yoshaphat's son, Yehoram's reign, that's when Edom rebelled and they made themselves another king. And that refers to the 11 Alufim here. That is when the 11 Alufim came up at the end of the Parsha, that they came up after that point. And it is about the future. Unlike the Ramban, it is about the future. It's telling you who's going to be in charge and that's that. And that makes sense why it would be called city-states because we wouldn't know their names because the names wouldn't be known yet. They were going to be hundreds of years in the future. Instead, it goes by city-states and it tells you where these Alufim are going to take over. But it doesn't say anything more than that. The number 11, no doubt, says the Balitosis, corresponds with the 11 Shoftim from Yoshua until Shmuel. Now, I don't know what that means, right? I, I really don't know what that means. I have a real problem with that. Because you go on, it's Yoshua, right? If we go from Yoshua itself, Yoshua, Asniel ben Kenaz, Eud ben Geira, Shamgar ben Anas, Devor and Avia, Gidon, Avimelech, Tola ben Pua, Yarigiladi, Yiftach, Ivtsan, right? Um, does anybody know who's after Ivtsan? Uh, uh, oh, uh, Zvuloni. Elona Zvuloni. Somebody else. Now you're getting, oh, Hilo Ben Avdo Napirosoni. Shimshon. And then Eli. And then comes Shmuel. 
Maybe you'll do, yeah, I would assume Shmuel. That's 16 altogether. I have no idea how he gets 11. Maybe you could take out Avimelech, because Avimelech wasn't the greatest guy in the world. There's some guys that are a little bit better than Avimelech. But I have no idea how you get 11 out of that. But the Balitoses all say it. They all say it's representative of those. And again, the Shoftim were not exactly kings, but they weren't exactly nobodies. So it makes sense that they connect with each other. The Pesach all says it connects with the 11 Klipos. It's not something I want to go into, but there, everybody brings down that there's 11 parts of the, the Ketores, right? All the 11 spices, and it's referring to all the bad, etc. There's stuff like that. There is a Mesorah that Eram, we don't know who Eram is, but the last king that's mentioned over here, the Brish Rabba Pegimel says he will bring gifts to Mashiach in the future. Right? Could have been, again, a son of Korach, but he's going to give kicks to the future. In the Rabbeinu Yol, he says he's going to empty out his treasuries, thus his name, Arom, Iram, is naked. He's going to be bereft of all of his na- treasuries, and that's that. In some Sifri Torah, the Ayin hangs up a little bit higher than the other letters, and it hangs backward a little bit. In other words, the Ayin is like, like, sort of like that, and going backward away from the rest of the words to hint that when he's alive, the kingdom will be given back to Klai Yisrael, and all 70 nations, thus the Ayin, are going to be given get back to Klai Yisrael. Torah Shlema brings this in number 70 in this week's Parsha. Maybe it's also that it's going to be singing the praises of Mashiach, and Iram is a language of a musical instrument of some sort. The Torah Shlema suggests that in the bottom. Either way, the Baal Shem Tov says it's all a hint toward Lush and Hari. You can see that later. And then comes a little bit more. The Abarbanel tells us that everything is mentioned over here. The point of telling us all this is to show how powerful Yitzchak Avinu's bracha was. It was a bracha that he made up on the spot. It was a bracha that had no shaykhs. He didn't even want to give it. He wasn't planning on giving him anything whatsoever. And yet, that bracha was so powerful so unbelievably powerful, it made Esav into having tons of alufim, tons of kings, all these people in charge, possibly going up until the days of Mashiach. Why? Because of Yitzchak's bracha. Says the Abarbanel, that's why we're mentioning all these psukha Maria about Esav. Why do we care about Esav's family? Because look at what Yitzchak's bracha did. Yitzchak's bracha did it to him. You can imagine that's what it would do for us as well. Yitzchak's bracha to Yaakov. Another reason that we mention Esav's family, says the Abarbanel, is to compare Esav's family to our family. They're filled with mamzerim and not kosher people. We, on the other hand, have yichus that we could track back all the way back by family to tell you where we come from. At least Anna... Olivama, Timna's children, and Korach were all Mamzerim. It could have been others, but at least those four were considered Mamzerim, and that's how the Pesukim treat them up above. Yet us, we have our Yichus that goes all the way back. HaKadosh Baruch who puts a hay and a yud by us in Parshas Pinchas, that we are Mishpachas HaPalui, Mishpachas HaYimna, etc. We have all the, the shame of HaKadosh Baruch who's on us. Now, the Be'am Lo'ez gives 12 reasons why we go through all the B'nai stuff over here. I'm not going to go through all 12, but I'll tell you a couple of them. One of them is to tell us about Timna. Timna, which we spoke about in previous years, the concubine of Esav, who ended up wanting to join Avram's of, Avram Avinu's family so badly, she was willing to become a concubine to Eliphaz in order to join the family. That's one. Another is to show that they needed, uh, to show us that they need to bring in kings from other nations because they themselves were not chashiv enough to be kings. I don't know where that comes from, but apparently there's a medrash that the alufin they brought in were from other nations and not from Esav themselves, which is super interesting. There's another answer to show how quickly their, their kingdoms folded, that there were alufin and then kings and then alufin again, that it didn't last for very long, or to tell us how mule 
mules came into being because Anna discovered the mules, right? How to be able to get them, etc., which we also spoke about in previous years. Victor Miller says this shows us the great loss that happened when Esav decided to stay away from Klal Yisrael. He had the option of being part of Klal Yisrael and he said no. He could have joined our mission. He could have fixed the entire world. And he had great people among him. Alufim, kings, great people. And yet he chose no. He lost out on the opportunity of a lifetime. Right? And from now on, they're called Yisraelim Mumarim. They're Mumarim. They're off the derech. Kiddushin Yerkasim Right? They said no. And that's that. Maybe that's why there's 11 people mentioned here and not 12. The Shvatim are 12. Even by the times of when Avram Binu found out about Nahor's family, Nahor's family had 12 people. Yishmael had 12 because they didn't reject anything. Esav rejected it and therefore he only had 11. He didn't have 12, right? He was given the offer and said no. Yishmael was never given the offer. Nahor was never given the offer. They had 12, but Esav could only get 11. Maybe that's the idea behind it. Tom Vidas, Rav Strombach says from the Vilna Gon, that there were so many secrets revealed to him about these psukim, suggesting that they refer to the Gullus of Bnei Yisrael at the very end in the nations of Edom and what's going to happen to them in the times of Geula. Maybe in the times of Mashiach we'll be able to understand what these psukim really mean. We gave a couple hints of Iram and Magdiel, but maybe we'll be able to understand in the future. But he said all these psukim refer to what's happening and that's why it's so important to learn them. The Torah more says an amazing thing. He says even words and psukim that don't seem to matter at all are very important and they hint to tremendous things. Again, if we don't get the pshat in them, then there's still a drush and there's still remez and there's still sowed. The Torah begins with a bays and it ends with a lamed. Voracious and Yisrael. Bays and a lamed. For the 32 nesivim, 32 paths to understand the Torah properly, which is mentioned in Sefer Yetzirah and the Zohar and Tikkun Samachtes and page 106a, he says it's possible that this whole parsha hints to our enemy Asa being destroyed and the rise of Klai Yisrael. Similar to what the Gros said above, and then it happened suddenly. It was sudden that they became Alufim. And then all of a sudden they became kings. They went back down to being Alufim until they became Esav Hu Aviadom. The last words of the Parsha, just a soldier again. The, the rise was without rhyme or reason. The fall will, will be without rhyme or reason. And eventually he'll just be Esav Aviadom. Gulas Yisrael, he says on the other hand, is step by step. We rise level by level. We build ourselves up as time goes on, becoming the people that we're supposed to be. At first, it's like the morning rays of light. Then it becomes like the light of the moon, a bright moon. And then eventually, like the light of a day, like morning is dawn, etc., and that's that. Our gullus is never going to end just like that. It's going to be a slow, slow climb until we can finally see the light of the gula coming to us. It'll be so much easier. And that's possibly the difference between benching. Remember how we called it Magdiel? That's the name. It's possible that's a hint to a word that's in Tehillim, Yud Ches Lamed Vav, as well as Shmuel Beis, Chav Beis, Nun Aleph. Shmuel Beis, Chav Beis is the same Mizmor as Tehillim Yud Ches. It's the exact same thing. Little differences here and there. But one of the big differences is the word Magdiel and Migdol. It's spelled Magdil in Tehillim. It's spelled Migdol in Shmuel Beis. And it's interesting. Obviously, we all know that when we say these words, right? Magdil, Yeshua Osmalko, is what we say during the week in our benching. Migdol, Yeshua Osmalko, is what we say on Shabbos and Yom Tif. I've always told people, the proof that you're a massive tzaddik 
is if you make a mistake on Shabbos and say Magdil instead of making a mistake during the week and saying Migdol. If you're making a mistake during the week and you say Migdol, that means you bench more often on Shabbos than you do during the week. If you make a mistake and you say Magdil on Shabbos, that shows you're benching quite a bit during the week and thankfully less so on Shabbos. That, I think, is a real sign of a tzaddik, right? You see that. Of course, somebody who doesn't make a mistake at all would probably be a bigger tzaddik. But either way, that's still going to be a tzaddik itself. Maybe that's the difference between them. Magdil is slowly but surely rising. Little by little, little by little, we see it happening. Migdol is the tower where everything is right there in front of us. That's the Migdol. In Nevi'im, in Navi, Shmuel Bays, it's Migdol. That's where we see the greatness. In Ksuvim, which is a lower level, it's not on the level of Nevuah, that's when it's Magdil, maybe. I'm going to end with this, guys. We have a Sipuri Chassid in page 111. He says, the Tver Shlomo of Radomsk was well known for getting people to do tshuva. He was a guy who went around, the Radomsker was well known. He was also a very fiery individual, very fiery individual. One time a very wealthy man came to visit him and he brought a piska, you know, a little petek, a little, you know, uh, little thing that they give in, the little note, right, and a pidyon little bit of money to be able to give over to him. The Radomsker refused to take the money, saying he doesn't need it. And after he read the piss, the little patek itself, he read it, and he looked at the man and he said, how are you doing and all of your children? The man had already stopped keeping Shabbos and was raising his children in an enlightened manner, you know, the way of the enlightenment at the time itself. And he told the Rav, we're all good. One son is a doctor, one son is a lawyer, one son is this, one son is that, and that's that. So that week's Parsha was Parsha's Vayishlach, this week's Parsha. Right, the Rebbe turned to the man and said, Esav also had many alufim. Esav had alufim as well. There was Lotan, there was Knaz, there was Timna, there was Olivama, and so on and so many more. But the Parsha ends with the words, Hu Esav Aviadom. He's still Esav. And Chazal Darsh from there, the Gemara Megillah, Hu Esav, Hu Berishaso, Mitchilaso Vadsofo. He remains a Russia from his beginning to his end. A lot of alufim, a lot of people that are powerful, but he's somebody who's a Russia from the beginning to the end. And while he said that word, he was pointing at the man with his finger. Who Asav Aviadom? This guy realized that the Ramsker is giving a massive musser for not keeping Shabbos and for allowing his kids to do whatever they wanted to do and not keeping them in the Torah path. So he didn't know what to do. He asked the Hasidim. He said, what can I do to, to get the Rebbe's bracha? So he suggested maybe he should buy a few silver menorahs that he could put on the Shabbos table. And when he asks, we'll tell him where it's from. So that Friday night, the Radomsker comes into the room. He sees on the Shabbos table, there's a bunch of silver menorahs everywhere. And he says immediately, who gave us those silver menorahs? They told him, this guy. Radomsker said, take them away. I don't want to see them. And after Shabbos, give them right back to the guy. Do not take a penny from him. That's what he said. When he went back, the guy went back to the Hasidim. And he said, what do I do? He won't even take my menorahs. What do I do? Chassidim said, I don't think you have a choice. You have to do tshuva. There's nothing else you can do. And the guy took it to heart. In order to get the bracha from the Radomsker, he did tshuva. He became a bal tshuva till the day of his death. Right? That's what the Radomsker was able to do for such a guy. Through Midas Adin, notice, not through Midas Achasad, that was not the Radomsker's way, right? But the Tefer Shlomo found his way through Midas Adin to be able to tell this guy, and he darshaned it out from those words at the end of the parsha. Just remember, no matter how you look at Parsha Yishlach, maybe Esav did do good things in his life. Maybe he did have great children. Maybe there were great grandchildren. Maybe there were some people that's there. Who Esav Aviadom? And again, the Drush, who Esav Berisho he remains in his rishos from the beginning until the very, very end.
Shkoyach, guys. Have a great Shabbos.